you know what it's like to be in the dark, to be confused, afraid, to feel really discouraged, like there's no light and there's no escape. Have you had that experience? Yeah, the good news that we celebrate at Christmas time is that in Christ, the light has come. And I'm telling you that this morning at the start because I don't want anyone in here to miss it. In Christ, the light has come and the light cannot be overcome by the darkness. Let's spend some time here at the start on this painting. Painted in 1622 by the Dutch artist Gerhard van Handhorst, the Adoration of the Shepherds. When he was a young man, this, this artist traveled from Utrecht, where he grew up, to Rome because of the influence of an Italian painter who was a master of the art of light and dark side by side. Chiaroscuro. Do you know who Caravaggio is? He was, he was a superstar in his own day. And so... As a young man, Gerhard von Hondhorst and his friends, they traveled up to Rome to learn this technique, and then they traveled back down, and he painted this in 1622, capturing the scene that is at the center of our faith as Christians with the intentional juxtaposition of the light and the dark, the artist creates a mood. Do you feel it when you look at the painting? He brings every viewer on a predictable path since your eyes are drawn first to what's brightest on the canvas. And then from there, they move along the path that the artist wants you to follow. You see there at the center, it is the child where your eyes go first, around whom all of those visitors gather because they want to know who he is. We want to know who he is. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom shepherds keep and, and angels greet with their anthems sweet. We want to know like they want to know who is he. That's what we're focusing in on this Christmas season as a church. For this reason, we believe that the answer to the question of that child's identity is actually the answer to the biggest questions that can be asked in life. Have you got some questions? Yeah, we believe the deep ones, the ones that are all the way down at the bottom of questions which matter are answered uniquely by the child depicted there in the painting who your eyes go to first. Now from there, you move up to the next brightest spot on the canvas, which is the face of the child's mother. Look at Mary's expression. That is a picture of pure adoration. She loves that baby there. She feels a sense of serenity, a sense of peace, a profound sense of satisfaction. There is no way she just gave birth to that baby. <laughs> you go from her face over to the right, and you see Joseph. And it's a very different expression. Do you see it? He's not as sure as mom is. There's some reservation there. He's, he's not entirely ready. In fact, if you look down from his face to his hands, you see the way his fingers are interlaced. That is symbolic, an expression of, I'm not sure just yet. There are people who are gathered here right now who are not sure yet. And they also are invited to look and see who this child is, like Joseph looks. You go from Joseph 
Across the canvas, the artist does this on purpose. You see that swoop of fabric. It's meant to draw your attention to the other side of the child, on the left of the canvas, to the, the, the first shepherd there on the bottom, and then diagonally up from him as the faces become progressively darker. All three of them in a line. Every one of their faces embodies the same emotion. It is joy. They are laughing. Do you see it? They're all, in, in, they're all dynamically moving. Their hands are up as if they, they can't control how happy they feel. In the gospel of Luke, the angels come, and the, the news that they announce to the shepherds is good news of great joy for all people. And here, the artist puts down as best he can a picture of what it looks like to be experiencing great joy in this moment. They are laughing. Have you felt like that ever? They feel like that in the presence of this child. There's one more figure. It's the hardest to see, the easiest to miss. Your eyes are tempted to go back to Mary and to the child again, but you'll miss the figure who's furthest off in the shadows. On the, on the far left of the canvas, look at his expression. He is the only one who is not looking directly at the child in the painting. In fact, he's not looking at anyone at all. His eyes are wide open as if he is staring off into the distance, deep in thought. And his expression captures wonder. And what he's wondering is, who is this child here? He's drawn to Jesus at his birth. He doesn't know exactly who he is, but he's there because he wants to know. You are here because you want to know. And that goes for all of us. Some of us are here and we're sure we've got Jesus all figured out. You haven't got him figured out yet. God has something good for you this morning. Even those of us who've been following him for a long time. Others are not sure. We don't even believe. But we've been drawn like that man in the shadows to see who this child is. Because that's the question when answered, which, which offers uniquely answers to the biggest questions that are troubling you, that trouble me, that trouble this whole planet. Who is this child? If you step back from these figures and look at the painting as a whole, the artist, in, in an ingenious way, offers a one-word answer to the question of the identity of Jesus through the way he executes his painting. Do you see what his answer to the question of who is this child, do you see what his answer is? Yeah, he's saying this child is the light. This child here in this scene is the light source for the scene. And that was an intentional step on the part of the artist to say with his painting something substantial about the identity of the child there. He is the light. That's who this child is. Now, Gerard van Honthorst didn't invent that idea. He got it from the Gospel of John, which is the place where we're focusing our attention on this Christmas season. The gospel which tells the story of Jesus' birth in a very different way than the others do. Not starting with the birth of the baby in the manger, but instead stretching far back all the way beyond creation with the claim that before anything else existed, this child already existed, and it was through him that life came into being. That's what we talked about last week. But John goes on to say that this child who brought life is also the one who brings the light. And now listen, before we get into John's gospel, listen to me now. You need the light. You need what light does. And Jesus does supernaturally what light does naturally. And if you open your heart and your mind to this this morning, you will grow, I promise. Shall we start? John chapter 1 verse 6 goes like this. There was a man sent from God whose name 
was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. Now, John here is not the name of the author who wrote this, that they have the same name. He's referring to a different John, the man that we know as John the Baptist. He is the other baby who appears in the Christmas narrative in Luke's gospel. If you know that gospel well, you know that it includes the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Against all odds, John's mother Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And then when Mary visits her, and Mary is Elizabeth's cousin, when they visit, the, the child in her womb leaps for joy. John, this baby, is the first one to acknowledge the presence and the reality of the Messiah who is there still yet unborn. It's Zechariah, who is John's father, who receives a miraculous promise from God about the identity of his son, John, and he's told that his son will be great as he prepares the way for Messiah. That is, that he will point people to the true life that comes from him. Look at verse 8. He himself was not the light, that is, John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. John, this child of Elizabeth and Zechariah, came for a reason, to testify, to point people to the true light. He, John, was not the light himself, and the reason that there's need for clarification here is that compelling people often cause confusion. Have you ever met someone who's so bright and brilliant they seem to shine on their own? Have you encountered someone like that? Often, it's a, it's a, it's a compelling religious teacher who is uh, tremendously powerful in their impact. They have a sense of freedom and courage. They have passion. They're not self-conscious, and because of this, they're magnetic. John the Baptist was like that, but here, it's very important from the beginning for John the Apostle to remind us that even though he shined, he was not the point. And every religious figure who's charismatic and moving is good to the degree that he points away from himself to the true light, who is Jesus. This is why John says, look again at it very carefully, that he came to testify to the light, the true light. The true light is Jesus. And here is an exclusive claim which Christians believe because the Bible teaches it unequivocally. And it is this, that Jesus is altogether unique. That he is not a light, but that he is the light. And before we move forward, you have to grasp this if you're going to learn what John wants to teach us. He does not say that there are not other lights in the world. There are many lights, illuminating people, people who are wise and gracious and kind, and with their example, they, they illuminate life for us. But what John says here is that behind every one of those compelling people is the one and only true light who was coming into the world in this child that was born in the manger. Jesus is not another light. He is the only light. He alone is the one who embodies what light brings into the world, which is, in a word, illumination. Others may shine, but only to the degree that they reflect the light which this one uniquely brings. What child is this? He is the light of the world, the light which uniquely illuminates the darkness. Now, if we would consider the function of light, what light actually does, then we will be in a position to gain a deeper insight into what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. 
What does light naturally do? Think for a moment. What does the light, physical light, in the world that you and I inhabit, what does it do naturally? When you have an answer there, you will have an answer for what Jesus Christ does supernaturally. And, and if we can take this in, why then every one of us will have the capacity to face life's darknesses in a different way. Would you like that? I know I need that. You need it too? Here's the first thing which light does naturally. It's very obvious. Light clarifies. When you're in the dark, you are confused. Is anyone here confused? Do you think other people in the world are confused? Oh, yeah, definitely. Those other people are, but not me. Listen, if that's what you think, it's a sign of your own confusion. I'm serious, and I mean this, and I'm, I'm applying this to myself. When I think about the confusion and the darkness and the misunderstanding and the many ways people are completely and utterly confused these days, not only about what's right and wrong, about whether there is right and wrong. My mind says they are so vastly confused, and it's easy for me to see and say they are confused. But listen, Jesus comes to shine the light not on them but on me and on them too. And the first thing which light does, physical light, is that it clarifies. It chases away misunderstanding. It brings the possibility of an accurate view of reality. When I'm in the dark, I can't find the right way to go. But when the light comes, then things become clear to me. And then understanding is within reach. And then I can have an accurate sense of reality. There is clarity. Now, listen to this statement from Psalm 119. This is verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Those were the words of King David, who had plenty of confusion in his life, but also had the unique clarity that comes from and through God's word. God's word has the unique capacity to bring light. That's what he's saying here, which imparts understanding, clarifying reality in the same way that light clarifies whatever it shines on. Jesus is God's word with us. We considered that last week. He is the true light. When he teaches, when Jesus opens his mouth to teach, unfolding his word, it imparts understanding to the simple. Uniquely, as the light of the world, Jesus brings clarity where there is confusion. He imparts understanding where there is misinformation. He corrects error. He directs those who will listen with their ears and their heart and trust him toward the right paths. Like physical light clarifies in nature, Jesus clarifies supernaturally. And we need the clarity he brings. It is easy for you to see where other people need clarity, don't you think? Can we be honest about that? But can we also be open to the truth that we need clarity ourselves? God help us be the light that clarifies things for others who are supremely confused, but it's got to start with us. And Jesus teaches us this. Let me show you what I mean. I believe that I'm ready to help that person take the speck out of his eye, but Jesus clarifies for me when he says, Christian, take the log out of your eye first. Only then can you help them with the speck in their eye. Does anyone else need that kind of clarification from the teacher Jesus? We think, and it's very obvious in this season, that having more things will make life better categorically. That once we get more possessions, we'll be better. And we think this with the things we buy, but we also think it with the way we chase after money and our investments. Jesus clarifies when he says life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, but in being rich toward God, in 
divestment in acts of generosity. He is the light of the world who brings clarity around the meaning and value of possessions. I think I should love my neighbors and my friends and those enemies over there. I'm justified in hating them. I don't say it out loud like that, but my heart bears witness to that truth every time I hear another story about that crazy person on the other side. And what wells up in me is disdain rather than affection. Does that happen for anyone else? Jesus is the light who clarifies and he says, you are called to love your enemies and pray for them. What this world needs, what I need, is the clarity which light brings, the clarity which Jesus, the light of the world, brings. Here, I'm going to say this to you as your pastor right now. Receive the light and allow Jesus to clarify those things in your life where you are confused, that you have the wrong ideas about. Receive the light and trust Jesus to illuminate the truth for you. Now, if you will do that and, the, and you receive some clarity, even with the clarity that Jesus provides, life is still going to have its challenges. Am I telling you the truth? Yes, I certainly am. Sometimes... The persistent lack of clarity that you have, even as you're trusting in Jesus, will put you into dangerous places where you feel unsafe and threatened, like life is still against you. You felt like that, haven't you? Here, there's a second thing which light does, which Jesus also does, which is for you. Here it is. Listen. Light protects. The darkness is an image of danger all over the scriptures. And that makes sense when you think about it for a little while. The world in which these writings came into being was a world where light was scarce. It was not easy to come by light, especially back then as it is today. You and I can just turn the light switch on. But back then, light was very hard to come by. It's hard for us to appreciate this. Uh, think of it. There are only six sources of light back then. The sun, the moon, and the stars. And nobody controlled those. What were the other three? Fire right? And that one's dangerous, isn't it? What are the other two? Lightning, even more dangerous, and then volcanoes. Boom. Light is hard to come by, and that means that the darkness is much more dangerous, and there is a vulnerability that comes with being in the dark. Some of you know this because it's such a fitting metaphor for your own experiences, but consider this from this perspective. Nocturnal animals waiting for unsuspecting travelers along the road at night. That's dangerous. Bandits who are opportunists that are hiding in the shadows, setting their ambush. Or enemies who take advantage that the shadows give to set up their offense under the cover of darkness. When there is no light, there is no security, there's no safety. But then when the light comes, the danger recedes and there is nothing that the darkness can do to stop the light from coming once it starts. Do you know that? This morning I was up early, maybe earlier before most of you, sitting at my kitchen table in the dark with my coffee, and then the sun started to come up. And I saw there with my own eyes how there was nothing that the night could do to hold it back, because when the light comes, then the darkness has to flee, and then there is a sense of security that comes with that light that nothing else brings. Here, listen to this line of poetry from Psalm 27, Verse 1, David wrote this also. Listen, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Do you know what the answer to his question is? No one. 
I should fear absolutely no one at all because when the Lord is with me and when, when he is close to me, I am safe like the person who is safe when the sun is shining down upon them fully and without any fear from the darkness. No one can threaten me with the Lord's protection because the true light chases away the darkness and the danger providing safety. Just as light creates a secure environment, Jesus protects those who take shelter in him. Do some of you know this from experience? If you know it, would you help me? Yes or no? Yes. You know this word? The Lord is my shepherd. You know that? That beautiful and magnificent psalm which describes walking through the valley of the shadow of death. One of the greatest fears that we have to face. The poet there says, I don't have to fear because the Lord is with me. He is my light and my salvation. Jesus goes on to teach, I am the good shepherd who stays with the sheep. When the wolves come, Jesus does not run away, but he stands right there between you and every threat, and he will stay there all night long until the light from on high dawns upon you. When the powers of malevolence and evil advance, Jesus pushes them back. Like the light chases away the shadows, vanquishing the darkness, Jesus supernaturally overwhelms wickedness and spiritual darkness. When the light of the Lord shines upon me, I am protected, and no one can truly harm me. Listen now, you open your heart to the one who comes at Christmas, and exactly the same is true for you, because you are his, he is yours, and you are never therefore removed from the protective embrace of the true light. Take shelter in Jesus. Here again, I'm speaking to you as pastor. Take shelter in Jesus and you will be in the light spiritually. And you will be protected as Jesus protects you and you're safe. What can the world do against you? It can take everything from you. It can never take the light from you. And therefore, you are okay and free and at ease. Now, let me tell you the truth a second time. Even with his protection, life will include loss. Now, I want to tell you this because I care for you. That even as you trust Jesus to clarify the way, and even as he gives his protection, life will include loss that is outside of your control, and at times it will be profoundly cruel and awful for you. You will lose a brother to a horrible accident. Your father will die long before he should have. You will have to come to church at Christmas time without your spouse. Or God help us, your child. And in this community, I know personally people who have faced each and every one of those losses. And not because they weren't following Jesus' clarity. And not because Jesus wasn't protecting them. But because this is the world we live in, a world where darkness persists. And I would never pretend to know how that darkness is for another person. I can only imagine I know that. And I speak to you now with hope in my heart about the light of Jesus, and I trust and know that some of you carry darkness that is so deep that it's an offense for me even to suggest that somehow he can bring joy. But I say it nonetheless because it's true. Light not only clarifies and protects, light encourages. And in a way that I know I could never encourage with my own words, light is powerful beyond any word. It encourages. Do you know that in the scriptures, the darkness is not just a metaphor for danger, it's also a metaphor for grief. You know in our cartoons when someone's always got it bad, they have a dark cloud that always hovers above them? That goes all the way back to the ancient 
poetry of the Bible, that image, because it's a good image for what grief is like. When your heart is broken and you have no hope in you and someone says, how, how are you? Maybe the best thing you can say is, I'm just trapped in the darkness. But you listen now to this word. It's the word of God. Psalm 35, weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And how long is the night and how dark is the night? Who knows? In the poet's mind, it could last years. But the truth about it is that joy comes in the morning and there is absolutely nothing that the darkness can do to stop the sunrise. It's utterly and completely impossible. The setting sun and, and the fading light are a fitting figure for the diminishment of hope. Night is when weeping lingers. Darkness is grief. That's why the poet draws on this image. Do you know who Job is? Is that name familiar to you? Job is the man who loses everything. When the scriptures tells Job's stories, it's the story of the worst that could ever come to any human being ever. When his three friends hear about everything he's lost, they come to him and they sit down with him and they weep loudly and then no one says anything for seven days and seven nights. Those are good friends. When someone finally speaks, it's Job and the first words out of his mouth. After that week long of silence, he curses the day on which he was born because that's what's going on in his heart. Have you ever felt like that? Let that day be darkness, Job says. May God above not seek it or light shine upon it. Let doom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds settle upon that day. Let the blackness of that day terrify it. Let the stars of its dawn disappear and be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. May it not see the eyelids of the morning. That's a man who's stuck in the darkness. The truth is darkness is the experience of grief and despair and discouragement in the heart. And the truth is weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And there is nothing that the dark can do to stop the sunrise. The darkness has no power to push it back. And with the light comes joy. Jesus is the true light. Did you hear me? His coming is as sure as the dawn, and it is proof that God has not forgotten us. You know, from the day that, that David made this line of poetry, and the prophets spoke of the light coming that Messiah would one day bring, and even told Israel that they would be the light of, of the world as God shined through them, do you know that it went from bad to worse for them? And the world looked more and more and more dark. And then get this mystery. The way God finally comes with the light is through the vulnerability of a little baby. Isn't that stunning? That is mysterious. It's magnificent. It's very unexpected, which is why in that painting, The Adoration of the Shepherds, my favorite figure is the guy who's furthest back and just looks awestruck and full of wonder because that makes sense. But listen to me, God has not forgotten you even if it feels like you're still stuck in the shadows. These are the words of Isaiah the prophet, which were then taken up by Zechariah, the father of John. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. An old promise, which is true right now for you as Jesus dawns and is ready to shine the light into your heart. Would you open your heart to him and receive that encouragement? One more one more uh, word about what light does and what Jesus does. I've saved this one for last because to me it's the most severe and, and in a way it's the one that we need the most. 
And we don't think like this, but we need it. Light exposes. It reveals what is hidden, uncovering things which are covered. Before I read the words of Jesus, I want to ask you to be honest. Do you always show your best side? Do you want people to think the best of you, yes or no? So we habitually hide the things about us that are wrong. And you know that we do this with Jesus too. Because we think that if he would see us, really, he wouldn't accept us. Because we've weighed ourselves in the balance, and we know that we're maybe more bad than good. And we wish it were otherwise. Listen to what Jesus says about the light. This is Luke 8, 17. This is Jesus. Nothing is hidden that will not be disclosed, nor is anything secret that will not become known and come to light. Jesus expressed this idea, not just in Luke 8, but often, and he did so because he knows that his disciples' impulse is to hide their failures, to manage their image by covering their faults and show only their best side. And please listen now. I'm telling you this because I care about you. This is how evil behaves, by covering up its true nature, avoiding the light so that its deeds will not be seen. But light exposes the truth as Jesus exposes the truth. There is no one who can get close to Jesus without the reality of his own sin becoming completely clear. As light indiscriminately shows what's there, Jesus reveals the true nature of every person's heart. And the truth about every person's heart is what's there for each of us is a record of sin that is beyond our ability to take away and is completely and totally condemning. And I'm telling you, this is the truth about me as much as it is about every person you've ever met. We will naturally want to hide it. I will want to hide it, believing that if Jesus sees me, he won't want to have anything to do with me. But listen to me right now. The truth is that not only does Jesus' light reveal our inadequacy, it also exposes God's most basic disposition toward every one of us, which is unmerited, unbelievable and inconceivable grace and acceptance. Not because we are more good than bad, but because in Christ, God has decided to love us even in our sin. Would you please take that to heart? It is maybe the most important thing that can be said about Christmas. It's the sign that you, you're not too bad for God to love. Just as you are, even while we were sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for the ungodly, and that's all of us. And the light which comes to expose how much we need him is also the light that exposes how much he loves us and how ready he is to meet our need with his grace and forgiveness. If you come to Jesus, he will expose your need and his provision to meet that need at the same time, exposing both your unworthiness and his determination to love you anyway. Here's the last thing I'll say to you as your pastor this morning. Do not flee from the light of Jesus. Don't. Run toward him and let him expose everything about who you are and then be received by him as the one who loves you more than you could imagine. Here, the last word goes to Jesus now. Luke chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's join our hearts together now in prayer.
God, we thank you that in Christ you have come as the light of the world. In many ways, we need the, the gift that light brings. We need clarity where we are confused. We need protection where we are vulnerable. We need you to help us feel the gift of light that comes into the darkness when we are downcast and brokenhearted. We need that encouragement. And even though we recoil from it, we need, we need to be exposed to your truth so that you can deal with the wound that we are inclined to hide. I pray that none of us would give in to that impulse to run away when we feel ashamed, but instead, with trust in our hearts, I pray that we would receive your searching glance so that you can see the nature of the wound that has afflicted us and you can heal it like the good physician. And then as people who have been healed, I pray very simply that each and every one of us would become, as you've told us we will when we trust you, the light of the world. We ask that you would shine through us. We pray specifically for your people, Israel, for their hearts to be opened to receive Messiah and in that way to finally fulfill that ancient promise that they would be the light of the world. We ask for every individual in this room who has been drawn to you by the grace of Jesus that we ourselves would have our hearts open to you so we can be, as you promised the disciples, they would be the light of the world. We ask that this church would become a bright and shining beacon, not to attract attention to ourselves, but that we would be a light that attracts attention to the light, Jesus. And then we pray that we would, with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts, celebrate the coming of our Lord and that you would use us to draw others to yourself. We ask for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.